This is exactly right. Case Files, an award-winning podcast, presents unforgettable true crime stories. Presented by an anonymous host, Case File delves deep into the crimes, investigations, and trials of solved and cold cases from around the world. With more than 250 episodes, the podcast has covered infamous unsolved mysteries, notorious murders, and lesser-known cases that deserve more attention. Discover why everyone from Rolling Stone to Time Magazine is calling it a must-listen experience. Follow Case File wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Kate. How's it going? Hey, Paul. It's going great. How about with you? I'm doing well. I've got my afternoon coffee here and I'm going to try to get through with a little extra dose of caffeine. <laughs> I was wondering what you were drinking. It's always a mystery to me. I don't like talking about bourbon whiskey or whatever you call it all that often, but I sometimes I kind of think it's a mystery cup of something. So it's either coffee or kava or some sort of whiskey bourbon concoction. You've got it. Those are the three that uh, might be in this cup. <laughs> so the giddier you get, the more I can guess. <laughs> yeah. That's right. <laughs> we should do a poll. We'll do a poll sometime. <laughs> what is Paul drinking? <laughs> We've talked about cases, these cases before. I get a lot of emails from people saying, where do you find this story? And I find these stories through so many different sources. One of my favorite authors is Eric Larson, and he calls himself a promiscuous reader which means he reads everything. And that's the way I am, a promiscuous reader. Wow. <laughs> but one of the places that I love is called Murder by Gaslight. And I know a lot of true crime fans know about that site. Hmm. And, you know, the person who curates that comes up with these articles, these blog posts. It's really excellent. And he'll leave behind the sources, which is what you should do. And then I will find a case every once in a while that I think is a really worthy case. And I'll send it to our researcher, Marin, and she'll add on and find all these new sources and everything. But I want to give a shout out to Murder by Gaslight because it is a really great blog. And every time I have a case that I get from there that I think is just an outstanding story, then I want to give them plenty of credit because it's not easy finding these cases. And a lot of times it's me Googling murder in the 18th hundreds, which is sort of now now that I say it aloud, a little embarrassing to admit. But I have to find these stories from somewhere. It's a hard ask because there need to be forensics. There needs to be mystery. It needs to be in a really great time period that I'm familiar with too. I need to be able to bring something to the table. So Murder by Gaslight is an excellent source for me. I haven't heard of it, but that's that's great that that's out there. You know, for me, what working cold cases, particularly uh, the Golden State Killer case, I would spend my fair share 
of time in the library going through the, the microfiche of old newspapers. And it was amazing, you know, some of the cases I would just inadvertently run across. I mean, these are newspapers from the 60s and 70s that I'm looking at, but I know that type of stuff exists way back when. I'm mm-hmm. sure there's people that are diving into these old newspapers, probably even you go to newspapers.com, the archives in there, and find some really crazy cases. You can, and I love how you've never heard of most of these cases. I'll throw in one every once in a while, Jeffrey McDonald or, you know, the Lindbergh baby, stuff that you've known. But even with those cases, sometimes it's like you sort of know the case, but not really. The story that I'm going to talk to you about today is in 1890s, Lincoln, Nebraska. And it's an example of a story that we researched a lot. There's a lot of information But just if you were going to dig into it, just as a layperson, I think it would be a challenge because it really, a lot of it has to come from newspapers and the newspapers in the 1800s were notoriously inaccurate. But some of the best stories out there are the ones that people have no idea about. And I get so tired of the same stories over and over again from the last 20 years. I like something that's fresh yet very old. I told a friend of mine the other day, the deader the better. (laughs) Not our catchphrase necessarily, but that is how I feel. I love the older the better, the deader the better for me. So, Hmm. Well, let's take a trip to Lincoln, Nebraska in the 1890s. So let me start by setting the scene. So Lincoln in 1890s was a rural place, very safe. Murder was incredibly rare there. But lawlessness, not so much. The victim in this story is a man named John Sheedy. And boy, does he have a past. He is not a sympathetic victim in any way whatsoever. He sounds like a pretty unpleasant person. But as we know, just because you're an unpleasant person doesn't mean that your case should not be investigated. Is there a case that you could think of where the victim might not have been someone you had a lot of empathy for, but you just had to do it. You just have to investigate the case. There's actually many of those types of cases. Yeah, I imagine. Because oftentimes, individuals make life decisions that cause them to become victims. And, you know, most of the types of homicide cases that I was involved with uh, involved people that were active criminals, And they get themselves shot. And uh, people who knew the deceased going, well, he's responsible for five homicides himself. Obviously, it's just one of those things where it's like, yes, you know, you don't have a lot of empathy, but you still do your job. Mm -hmm. But I know, like for me, I always went after the cases that I had personal empathy for the victims, mm-hmm. you know, the true innocent victims. You know, that's that's who I felt that I needed to champion their cause versus, you know, maybe doing more the public safety route and, and going after the, you know, the gun violence type cases. And, you know, what's so difficult about these types of stories is when you have someone like a John Sheedy who is in the middle of some organized crime in the 1890s in Nebraska, you've automatically opened up your suspect pool largely because you've got someone who is in an at-risk lifestyle. And I don't want to jump into it too much yet. I want to talk more about the forensics and what happens first, and then we can talk about the lifestyle because that's when we'll start talking about suspects. Does that work for you? That works for me. Okay. Lincoln, Nebraska, January 11th, must be colder than hell. I can't imagine (laughs) under any circumstances this is a balmy January. So I'm going to go with this was probably a cold January night. (laughs) 
Yes. And so that would tell me that chances are the players in this particular case are dressed with multiple layers of clothing, heavier clothing, et cetera. Yep. Okay. And this is a case of, it is a determination of who killed him using what weapon. And that's where this case to me is so fascinating. Hmm. Around 7.30 on January 11th, 1891, John Sheedy was heading towards a casino he owned, which was just a few blocks away from his house. John Sheedy, he's a casino owner who is involved in a lot of back deal stuff, not good stuff. And this automatically puts him at risk for any type of crime, but this seems pretty personal. Shortly after he exited his front door, there's a man who appears out of nowhere and violently assaults him with, this is a 19th century weapon here, violently assaulted him with a steel cane wrapped in leather. And I have a picture. Okay. It's the only picture we have with this case. So my research was that with these steel canes that were wrapped in leather, if they were expensive, the leather was part of the fashion. You could get a really expensive leather wrapped cane, or if it was a cheap cane, like the one in this case was, it was for grip. Okay. And it's very heavy, and it's for protection. John Sheedy is beaten with this type of cane, very heavy steel cane with a really strong grip. Being solid steel for something that is this length and and diameter, it looks like the diameter, I would say like a typical cane that is used today made out of, let's say, wood or aluminum has a diameter of like three quarters inch is my guess, three quarters to an inch. Mm -hmm. Imagine that being solid steel. This weapon has a lot of mass. So that informs me a lot in terms of the potential for the types of wounds. A lot of damage. Yes, absolutely. This is something that could easily crush a skull, fracture, you know, the facial bones. If the victim is putting up his arms in defense, it probably could break his arms. Mm -hmm. Of course, coming out of law enforcement, uh, you know, during the academy, I never carried a baton, but I got experience and training on the use of these batons, which are much shorter, Mm -hmm. less mass. But the amount of damage that baton can do is significant. And this is several magnitudes greater. Isn't it unwieldy though? Would a cane like this be a little, because it's so heavy, would it be a little hard to control? Well, any time you have a weapon that has length, such as a baseball bat, a, a standard size baseball bat, the weakness of that weapon is its length because the offender has to be at a certain distance away from the victim in order to be able to inflict successful blows. Mm-hmm. And the best defense against somebody who has that type of weapon, whether it be a cane, a baseball bat, something similar, an axe, mm-hmm is to get close to the offender, then that weapon is neutralized. But at a distance, it can cause a tremendous amount of damage. Well, let me tell you the kind of damage it caused. He was struck several times on the side of the head, several fractures in the bones on his face, none of which, this is what the coroner said, none of which went through the skull. And he was struck above his left eye and upper jaw, That just seems like a a large amount of damage, but they're saying that it didn't cave in his skull. Is that what you're reading from this? 
That's what I'm hearing. But obviously, this is at autopsy. So yeah. there was some fatal something killed him if it wasn't these these injuries. Something did, but we're not talking about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the debate about this case. What killed him? And this seems pretty straightforward, but it's not. So when you hear this, when you hear these notes, several fractures in the bones on his face, but none of which went through the skull, is it possible he survived this? Well, based on those descriptions, yes. If you have crushing injuries to the face, that's not going to necessarily translate into fatal injuries. We're not having the brain impacted. You know, the, the cranium itself is not being compromised. We have individuals who attempt suicide and blow half their face off. And they survive, they remain conscious, you know, so that is a non, technically it's a non-fatal area. It's a, but he did have some blows to his skull, Yeah. but the pathologist is saying those were not fatal blows? No, so let me tell you this, however hard these hits were, it did not stop John Sheedy from pulling a gun and firing at the guy as the guy's running away. He gets away, John Sheedy can't identify him, he is laying on the ground at this point, the man leaves behind the cane, which is how we know that it's a steel cane wrapped in leather. When Sheedy's wife, whose name was Mary Sheedy, came out, she helped him inside the house. So he was obviously on his feet. She calls for the doctor and the police. The doctors come and give him a medicine that we're going to talk about in a second. And then they leave. They don't think this is going to be fatal. They think he's fine. They give him three doses of sulfonol of 10 grains, which just as a cursory search for me, it seemed like it was a sedative. Did you find anything? This was your homework assignment. Yeah, you know, I looked it up. It is uh, a sedative. Uh, seems to have narcotic-like properties. I thought I saw it as being a Schedule Three drug. Is that like a morphine or no? Is that something that would be prescribed? They prescribed it, so... Right. Well, and, and that's the interesting thing is is that it appears that back in the 1800s, it was a drug that was being experimented with a lot due to its sedative and pain-killing actions. Mm -hmm. But it does not appear to be something that is in high use today, but it is listed as a controlled substance. Hmm. But surprisingly, I found very little about this drug. Yet also, I don't know a lot of details on it, how it would be administered, even its chemical properties right now. But it is something that was in play back at the time of this case. I read it as something also that was used as a hypnotic. I'm not even really sure what that means. Well, the hypnotics, you know, that is a class of drugs that, that just alters the sensory perceptions of the person that is taking the drug. Now, hypnotics can have other actions within the body, such as being, you know, a sedative. Some sedatives provide hypnotic-type effects, and some don't. Well, nobody is that concerned about this, which is surprising. He's got head injuries. John doesn't go to the hospital. The police leave. They say, we'll find the suspect, we hope. The doctors leave after giving him a little bit of this sedative. Mary, his wife, fixes him a cup of coffee. They are up and talking. They go to bed. And around 4 o'clock in the morning, the next day, she found John completely paralyzed. And then he soon fell into a coma. And by 10 o'clock that night, he was dead. Okay. Different things are going through my head. Mm -hmm. You know, he has suffered trauma mm -hmm. to his head. There could be delayed effects from that trauma 
that may have contributed to his death for sure. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, it's what the doctors are administering to him. I mean, these are drugs from the late 1800s. Mm -hmm. So imagine the quality of these drugs and how much they're giving him. Is it possible that he was given too much of this sulfonol? Is it possible it wasn't even sulfonol to begin with? Yeah. You know, it was a counterfeit. Did he have a bad reaction to this drug? Mm-hmm. You know, an allergic reaction. Maybe there's some diluents or, or something else in this drug that he just did not tolerate well. So there's so many things that are going on here at, at this point. Well, let's talk about victimology. We'll talk about the victim first, John Sheedy. He was the owner of a casino. It was an illegal casino. He was also a real estate developer And it seems like he had as many friends as he had enemies. He had the mayor of Lincoln come to his casino regularly, but he also had quite a few law-abiding citizens who detested this casino that he ran, as well as other casino owners. So there are a lot of people out there who would have been happy to have him dead. He had a, a monopoly over the scene. I mean, everybody came to this man's casino, and he was a bit of a jerk, He intimidated people. He bribed the police. And so there are a lot of suspects. We don't have a description. John Sheedy can't describe who his offender was. So the police are at wit's end at this point trying to figure out what happened in a very high-profile murder. I assume something wrong that John Sheedy was maybe a a low life in the area, but it sounds like he has some financial status. He does, but in a bad way, he screws people over is what it sounds like. Yeah, so there's money behind his name. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he's involved in this this controversial casino and he treats people poorly. Mm -hmm. And one of those people that he treated poorly was his wife, unfortunately. So let's add a few more suspects in the men in Mary's life. So John Sheedy met Mary in the 1880s. He was living in a hotel and she was employed as a housekeeper. She had already been married twice. Her first marriage was to a man who went to prison and was currently in prison. So he is not someone who would have been considered a suspect. But her second marriage was to a man named George Merrill. And, you know, they had once been big fixtures in the gambling halls in Lincoln, Nebraska also. Merrill dumped her because he believed she was cheating and likely cheating with John Sheedy on him. He kicked her out of the house And then she hooked up with John Sheedy. So you have this man, George, who kicked out Mary, but their divorce was finalized nine years before this happened. I was just looking for suspects in general. Is there like an expiration date for anger over divorce? Do you think (laughs) nine years seems like a long time to hold a grudge? No, you know, I wouldn't say there's an expiration date. However, noting the amount of time is significant. Often, if you're looking at the crime being committed as a result of, let's say, this love triangle, the emotions are the highest when this whole relationship is dissolving. Mm -hmm. And that's often when you see the violence occurring. Now you've got, in essence, a cooling off period. So for this George character, 
because of this love triangle between his wife and maybe with Sheedy, to come and and now take Sheedy out, Mm -hmm. I would suspect that maybe something reinitiated the emotions. Okay. A recent interaction between George and Mary or between him and Sheedy or, or something that is going to cause that to flare up again. Not necessarily, but that's what I would be looking for. Interviewing Mary, interviewing George. What has gone on recently between you two, as well as independently within their various social circles that may have touched George off and brought up the emotions from nine years prior? Okay, let's leave George Merrill on the back burner because there is a more recent man than nine years. Mary began having an affair after about eh, 1890. She and John Sheedy had been married for five years. It was not a happy marriage. It sounded like he was abusive. And in 1890, she met a traveling salesman named Harry Wallstrom, so another suspect to add to the list for police. They fell in love, and now here's another person. So we need to kind of go the same way we did with George Merrill, which is Where do we stand? What's the motive for him to do this? It seems like a clearer motive with Harry than it would be with George, I would imagine. Well, it's most certainly more contemporaneous. Now, getting into the circumstances of the attack, remind me, where is Sheedy? He's now about to enter his house after leaving the casino. Is that where he is attacked? He was heading towards a casino that he owned, which was just a few blocks away from the house. So he was at his front door. He walked out the front door. Okay, so he's attacked immediately as soon as he leaves the house. Correct. So somebody is lying in wait and understands that Sheedy, at what time Sheedy is going to leave the house. Right. Okay, that's what I needed to know. Yep. So that at least gives me some information that there has been, in all likelihood, unless this was just absolute random psychotic individual who happened to be in the area and Sheedy just happened to walk out and the guy just decided to attack him. Considering the victimology, it's more likely that Sheedy was targeted. And if he's targeted, then now the offender has planned to attack him as soon as he leaves his house and has brought this steel cane with him in order to accomplish this attack. And one question we'll have moving forward is, is it likely that somebody from John Sheedy's family has tipped off whomever the killer is, of John Sheedy's schedule that night. Because I get the impression that the owner of an illegal casino probably has an erratic schedule. I'm not sure this guy is leaving at 7.30 every night. That would be part of the investigation and the interviews. Was this the normal time that Sheedy left the house or was this an unusual time? And if it's unusual, then that would be informative that the offender likely got information as to when Sheedy was going to leave. Now, how would the offender get that information? You know, when did Sheedy make the decision to go to the casino? You know, right before he left? Or was this something that he planned, you know, to do hours prior? And then it's like, well, okay, let's say Mary is the informant Mm -hmm. because she's likely is going to be the one person in the house that would know. Mm -hmm. How is she communicating that with somebody on the outside? Well, you can see how much intrigue there is with this case. And because this very powerful, sleazy man in Lincoln was murdered, 
it has caused the media to take notice and, of course, report every salacious detail possible, including the relationship between John and Mary, which was acrimonious. The coroner's inquest became a problem because it was held the morning after he died and the judge banned all reporters and onlookers from the courtroom which incensed everybody, of course, reporters especially. And it stoked all of these conspiracy theories. You know, I'm assuming also that Sheedy's family was paying jurors off and, you know, everything you could think of. It's nice to know that conspiracy theories are not specific to just today. Obviously, they were happening in the 1800s also. People wanted details. It's like any of these cases that we talk about now. People wanted details that the police were not willing to give out because they're still looking for an assailant at this point. And the police are allowed to withhold details details, as maddening as it is to, you know, people in the public or or the families. Mm-hmm. So the locals began theorizing who might be behind the murder because the press found out that John Sheedy had survived two other assassination attempts. And this comes up for you, information twofold. One is on his medical condition, because this plays into it. And two is who is the likely person to have done this? Let's talk about the circumstances first and then why it becomes important later. And it's not simply who did it. So on December 9th, 1890, so this was about a month earlier, an unknown offender tried to shoot him but was unsuccessful. So it just missed. And then 10 days later, Shidi was shot again. This time it hit him, hit him in the head, but it apparently didn't kill him. And the reason that they knew about this was because they found the bullet wound during the autopsy. And I'm assuming Mary told them about it too. Two different attempts and the inquest reached the conclusion that Shidi had been murdered, but had likely died because of internal bleeding, you know, from the attacker hitting him on the head. Later on, it would become controversial because of the first bullet that hit him in the head, whether or not that had done some damage to begin with. It's very confusing. All the autopsy stuff is confusing in this case. (laughs) Yeah, I guess, you know, from the previous shooting, I'm curious as to whether or not the bullet penetrated the skull and that they recovered the bullet from his brain, or did this bullet just merely bounce? I mean, just literally hit the skull and bounced off or glazed off the skull. And so now they're just seeing the old wound and potentially damage to the exterior surface or the external surface of of the skull bone itself. What they're saying is the doctors found the bullet wound from the previous attempt, and they noted some bleeding of the brain specifically around the wound. So this happened two weeks earlier. He had been shot in the head. Then when he was then beaten in the head, gosh, this guy, he really took it. Yeah, he did. Uh, he's also very thick-headed. <laughs> not thick enough. <laughs> no, between, uh, you know, uh, a bullet not uh, penetrating into the skull and then a, a steel cane not crushing the skull. And, you know, it's interesting just from a pathology standpoint is if there was still active bleeding underneath where the bullet struck the skull from two weeks prior, and now you've got fresh injuries to the skull that were non-fatal, it seems to me that the pathologist would likely start to add this up and say, well, this is a compounding effect. Mm -hmm. It was the combination of both events that contributed 
to his death. And so in essence, now you've got whoever fired the gun as being somebody who could be arrested and charged with murder. And then if you found the, if it's a different person who hit him with the cane, you could also hit that person up for murder. Mm -hmm. And it's like their two actions combined would be the reason John died, if that's what the autopsy results ultimately concluded. Well, the doctors are also saying that there was an abnormal wetness to his brain post-mortem, but Marin couldn't find much else aside from that. An abnormal wetness, what would that mean? Do you have any idea? I don't. Of course, if there's uh, hemorrhaging, if you have bleeding inside the skull, mm -hmm. uh, the pathologist would note that. And that would be something that would be very significant in their findings as being a reason for the cause of death. Mm -hmm. The wetness aspect almost, man, I'm stretching here. This is, this is where, you know, would need a forensic pathologist to weigh in. But I'm almost wondering if you have like cerebral spinal fluid leakage, Ooh. because that does go up into, forgetting the term, but these reservoirs, if you were inside the brain. And if you have some leakage, now maybe that's something that they're seeing. Hmm. One of the other issues is. A couple of different people who attended the autopsy looked at the results, and there's a big conflict. And the conflict is whether or not he died from a combination of his previous assassination attempt and the beating of the head, or there's another set of physicians that said what this looks like to them is morphine poisoning. Oh. There's a diseased condition of the heart, the kidneys, and the gall, and these physicians testified that there were quite a number of symptoms of morphine poisoning that would be the same as symptoms of a compression of the brain resulting from a blow to the head. I have no idea. Can those mimic each other? That I don't know. Of course, morphine, which is, is a fairly potent opiate, you know, it is something that uh, acute morphine poisoning can can lead to death mm -hmm. relatively quickly, just like overdosing on heroin, overdosing on fentanyl. What would be interesting is if these conditions that they're seeing, the state of these organs, is from chronic morphine poisoning, hmm. as if he was being given doses of morphine. Now, morphine is something that, you know, if you're doing it at a, a, a high enough level, and it doesn't take much... Sheedy's going to be feeling it. Yeah. It's got the sedating properties and, uh, you know, he would be somewhat out of it. But if, if it is a chronic aspect, then it comes down to, well, how is it being administered? Right. And who has access to him on a repeated basis, either at home, at the casino, or wherever he's hanging out? Or he's abusing it himself, which is very, very possible. That's a good point right there. So you've got split experts, which we know it's so frustrating, split experts. We have physicians who say this looks like he died from being beaten to death. Then we have experts who say it looks like he died from morphine poisoning. And now you're looking at a whole different set of suspects. Just like you said, who has access to poison him if he's even been poisoned by morphine? Yeah. But it makes a difference. It makes a difference in who killed him. Well, yes and no. Let's say Sheedy is abusing morphine. And that can be a 
contributing factor to his death for sure. He's less vigorous in terms, you know, because he's now in a disease state due to chronic drug abuse. However, he's been shot in the head. Mm -hmm. He's been bludgeoned in the head and the face. These are acts of violence. And I think that the offenders responsible for those two events are the ones that caused his death. And the morphine aspect is a contributing factor. Now, it becomes more significant. If he's just abusing it himself, then it's just a contributor. Right. If somebody is dosing him in a poisoning type of scenario, then that person is also responsible for his death. Okay, well, let's talk about suspects here. The police start looking for Sheedy's killer. And of course, the public thinks this has to do with his illegal activity. We know that his wife, Mary, has had several men in her life off and on who could be problematic. There is a tip from a witness who said they saw what happened. They were in the shadows. They described the assailant. We've heard this before. They described the assailant as a black man. And Mary had told police that she really did not see the attacker, but she saw the flash of somebody who looked like a black man. They go to a pawn shop employee who said he had recently sold a leather-bound steel cane to a black man. In the 1800s, these steel canes were a dime a dozen. This man's name was William Monday McFarland. So I'm just going to call him McFarland. You know, we see this time and time again. You have, particularly in the 1800s too, you have a black man as a very convenient scapegoat in a case like this. And we don't even know anything about McFarland yet. Okay. And, and, and the first question that I have is, why would McFarland be involved in Sheedy's homicide? Yeah. They track down McFarland two days later. He's arrested and taken to the city jail. He says that he was on the receiving end of some really bad, coercive, dangerous police interrogation tactics. They put him in a sweat box. He was interrogated for hours and hours and hours and hours. Of course, I'm sure not offered an attorney. But after he didn't quickly confess to murder, he says police reportedly threatened to turn him over to an angry mob. And there was a very angry mob when they found out it was a black man who might have done this. He was freaked out and he broke and he confessed to killing John Sheedy and said he was also behind the two previous assassination attempts. But he really doesn't know the details of what happened. He could just regurgitate what the police said. So now we're conflicted. We don't know if McFarland, who has confessed, actually was the one who attacked John Sheedy that night. Well, it sounds like he confessed to save his life. Yeah. This is just obviously it's an inappropriate confession. Uh, no way can be put on that. You know, they need to establish why would McFarland have any reason to make repeated attempts at killing Sheedy? He's not just walking in the area with a steel cane. He was there before with a gun and that failed. And so now he comes back. So obviously there's some sort of relationship that would create a reason that should be able to be figured out why McFarland would be involved in this case. Just because he has a steel cane in and of itself is completely insufficient. So we do have a reason because after he is intimidated by the police and he has confessed and they say, why would you do this? He says some truthful things. One is that he was a barber and a hairstylist. He and Mary Sheedy became friends. 
he would actually go to Mary Sheedy's house once a week to fix her hair, and they became friendly, and eventually they had an affair. Okay. She said to William McFarland that her relationship with John Sheedy, her husband, was a sham. She was having an affair with this guy, Harry Wallstrom, the man from Buffalo, but that that affair was falling apart. And she just needed her marriage to end. He says that Mary offered him $20,000 to kill her husband. Now that's almost $700,000 today. But McFarland said no. Then she threatened to tell John about their affair if he didn't kill John Sheedy. He freaked out and gave in and agreed to the scheme, but he struggled during his first two attempts, clearly, because it didn't work, to kill John Sheedy. And then he finally figured out that the only surefire way to do this was with the cane. He has now confessed to all of this. But McFarland says that's not what killed John Sheedy because Mary poisoned his coffee that night with morphine. That's what killed him. You know, that was going to be my theory. Yep. Mary wanted out of the relationship had a lover try to kill her husband, obviously failed, but she had access to him after he was in this pretty significantly injured state and was able to overdose him on the morphine. It's interesting with McFarland, the way the confession was obtained is completely inappropriate. Right. The case would be thrown out Mm -hmm. based on how he was being treated. But the details are pretty compelling. Of course, now, now investigators, you've got McFarland, who I believe, you know, if everything is right, that he shot Sheedy and he was the one that bludgeoned Sheedy, he absolutely should be charged with murder. Mm-hmm. But now it's a matter of proving, did Mary give him morphine? If you have two defendants who should be standing trial for murder in this case. Temporarily, we have three defendants because the prosecutor ordered the arrest of William McFarland, Mary Sheedy, and for good measure, her lover, Harry Wallstrom, who it turns out did nothing and they released him pretty quickly. But they all pled guilty initially to murder. And McFarland then again recanted. He said, I did not make that confession truthfully. It was under duress. But he was pretty specific to me. We don't know. He seemed pretty specific in that story. So they moved forward, even though he recanted the confession, they moved forward with the trial. This was so controversial that it took a week and 216 potential jurors before finally 12 were selected for the jury. 216 potential jurors. So this was how controversial this case was back then. Well, you know, the high-profile nature, you're dealing with a less than sympathetic victim. And now, because of the publicity and the outrage, particularly with the public finding out well, a black man was involved mm-hmm. and there's a, a lynch mob, in essence, mm-hmm. you know, out there, I could see where the general person in the public it would be so biased that you couldn't sit them on this jury. Right. And I think that that's what ended up happening is this became a media circus, lots of chaos. What I think made it even more chaotic is that the prosecutor tried them together, Mary Sheedy and William McFarland, because the prosecutor felt that the only way they could introduce McFarland's confession was to have them tried together. 
because he was afraid if not, it would be thrown out. Did Mary make any statements? Was she interviewed? She denied it. She was, and she denied it. They didn't find the coffee cup that supposedly she had been using to poison him. There was no hard, hard evidence except for what McFarland said happened. And for the medical experts who say, boy, this looks like morphine poisoning to us. So in late April of 1891, Sheedy's body was exhumed and they took his head and his spinal cord and his liver and his bladder and removed them. And they underwent further analysis to determine a conclusive cause of death. They wanted to know, was this poisoning? Which one killed him? Because it made a difference. And ultimately, the cause of death seems incredibly unclear. There were different medical experts, once again, who had different opinions. The parties who promoted the idea of morphine poisoning did that on the basis of the way Sheedy's symptoms were presenting on the night of the attack. So this was not based on whatever they exhumed. It was the description that the physicians gave of how he was presenting on the night of the attack. But these physicians also gave him sulfonol. They did, and I think these are the physicians who then came back and looked at the state of his body. The question to me is, regardless of who did what, this man clearly had been killed, and they're trying to sort out who did it because it does, at least to this judge and this jury, make a difference. As I think about McFarland and his confession, you know, of course, on the surface, I mean, he, the details he's providing are compelling. I'd want to know what details he was fed by his interviewers. Right. That's really where you get into the crux of some of these coerced confessions, especially when McFarland is being told, we're going to turn you over to the lynch mob. You know, is he now just, in essence, basically a parrot? The interviewers are saying, did you shoot Sheedy because you're about to be paid $20,000 by Mary? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir, I did. Is that the way this, you know, how the questions are being asked, the details that these interviewers are providing ahead of the answers becomes important. The circumstances we know are completely inappropriate. So assessing McFarland's involvement, I think gets a, a lot more complicated because we don't have recordings of the interview. We don't have video recording of the interview. We don't know what kind of duress he was under, what kinds of information he was provided. But if he is legitimately making these statements with these kinds of details without having them being provided to him, then that's where I go, okay, yeah, he likely is involved in the attacks on Sheedy for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm leaning towards McFarlane being likely involved also, and I'm certainly leaning towards Mary being involved. I would believe in the morphine, in the coffee, absolutely. So let's talk about toxicology because this surprised me too. Toxicology was available in the late 1800s, and there were a number of symptoms, as we talked about that, just lay doctors looked and said, this looks like morphine to us. Mm -hmm. They brought in toxicologists, and months after the murder, when they exhumed his body, A well-regarded toxicologist whose name was Professor Haynes came from Chicago and he tested Sheedy's organs and he found no traces of morphine. But again, this is months, months. Mm -hmm. So question number one is how long does morphine stay in the system? And question number two is both the prosecution and the defense said, well, listen, the body parts were transported in jars and they were not sealed before they were handed over to Professor Haynes. So they're saying there's contamination. Well, you know, the types of toxicology testing that were being done back then were colorimetric, 
were crystal tests Mm -hmm. and the amount of morphine in a system, you know, you ingest morphine, it's distributed throughout the various tissues in the body, Mm -hmm. you know, so it, it ends up being quite small amounts in any tissue. And for example, if it's in the blood, uh, you have to have the technology available to detect the morphine and its metabolites at very small levels in which these color metric and crystal tests really couldn't do. It required a lot, relatively speaking, Mm -hmm. compared to the technologies that are being used today. Now, when you start talking about testing tissues several months after death. Yeah. And of course, one of the big questions is, is, you know, was the body embalmed? I don't know, but I looked it up and embalming really became popular around the Civil War time, which would have been 20-something years before this. And in the 1870s, it became much more common. So someone of his stature, however sleazy he was, good chance that it was embalmed. So what difference would that have made if his body were embalmed? Well, the embalming is pumping these various solvents and other chemicals into the body as as a preservative. It's going through the blood vessels, mm-hmm. right? So now the blood, in essence, is removed, and, and blood is one of the primary sources of detecting drugs. So that is eliminated right away. Mm-hmm. Now you're having to rely on tissues in which morphine and its metabolites would partition into, distribute into. Now you have a body that has been buried for several months, mm-hmm. and if it's embalmed, it would be, you know, relatively well-preserved from a look standpoint. But there's still chemical processes that go on that degrade all these various drugs in the system. This is now where you have to resort to hair, fingernails for drugs that are being chronically abused that are now being deposited in these more stable structures, more stable tissues of the body, which a acute morphine overdose, you're not going to see anything in those structures. Mm -hmm. So I just don't think that they would have had any success, even if he had been overdosed on morphine in an acute exposure that night by Mary, they would not have been able to detect it using the techniques that they had. And I even question whether or not today, using much more sensitive technologies, we would be able to detect it. So there's still a good chance in your mind that Mary was the one responsible. It sounds like everybody tried to kill this guy. But ultimately, if we're going to be technical, technical, he's sitting up, he's talking to his wife, and he's going to bed. He's drinking coffee after being beaten on the head. Not a crushed skull, they say. Yes, he's had this bullet wound from 20 days ago in his head, but he's going to sleep. We're checking out what's happening when. I wonder which one would you think ultimately would have been the one that would have done him in. <laughs> well, I I go back to my initial assessment is that he's been shot in the head. Yeah. Right? Uh, they see uh, active bleeding on the brain underneath where this bullet wound was at the time of autopsy. And then he's also received several blows from a steel cane during this bludgeoning the night before he dies. These cannot be removed from being contributing to the cause of his his death. And then to add morphine, let's say uh, intentional overdose of morphine on top of it, all three of those events 
I believe, are criminally viable to charge individuals responsible with murder. And that's where I believe both McFarland and Mary Sheedy are rightfully being charged with murder in this case. This trial, man, it was 18 days, which is a very long time in a trial for 1890. And the prosecutor really played up on the illicit sex and the rising racial tensions that were happening in Lincoln, Nebraska at the time. And really what the state's case against McFarlane hung on, this conspiracy, was his confession that he said Mary was the one who paid me. He said Mary had been unhappy with her husband. He said Mary put the morphine in his cup of coffee that night and killed him. And that's what happened. The judge said to the jury, we're throwing that confession out. We're not doing it, which seems like the right decision. Yeah, based on the circumstances, it is a coerced confession. And even if the details of the confession are accurate and implicate McFarland, you cannot conduct an interview under that type of pressure because of this very situation. To have that very incriminating statements that he's making, McFarland is making, you don't want to run the risk of having them thrown out. And that's where the investigators in this case were just stupid to pursue that angle and that pressure. But that's probably what they did in every single case like this. Sure. So the prosecutors are left with mostly a circumstantial case against Mary Sheedy and William McFarland. They just simply say, listen, who else could it have been? And wrap it up. And it goes to the jury. And ultimately, the jury returns not guilty. And they both walk free, even though it's likely they both killed him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the frustrating part is if they are responsible, it's frustrating that they got off. But the way it has been handled, that is not surprising. And I believe that jurors probably came back with the right decision. It, It also does come down to Sheedy as a victim. Even though you don't go out, you can't have people taking the law into their own hands or, you know, let's eliminate this person You know, sometimes we call these misdemeanor homicides jokingly because the victim is somebody that it's like, my God, this this guy has been such a menace to society. Mm -hmm. The fact that he is now dead is that nobody's going to miss him. That sounds like sheedy, but you can't have somebody deciding, well, we're going to kill this person, you know, And, and Mary deciding, I want to get out of this abusive relationship. You can feel for a woman, you know, in terms of if if she's in an abusive relationship, you want her to be safe, but to take the measures of, of homicide is, is just wrong. You know, you can't allow that. I just thought it was so interesting that when the jury couldn't decide who killed him, what happened? Who killed him? (laughs) You have all these people who are suspects. Yeah. They had no choice but to let him go. He was very clearly murdered. <laughs> it, yeah. was, it was probably these two people, and they just vanished. Both Mary and William, probably separately, I would guess, just vanished from history. Well, and they may have vanished from the local area, yeah. but especially McFarland, you know, because everybody would have just assumed, well, you just got off, and so we'll take justice into our own hands, and the lynch mob aspect comes out. And then if, if Mary, if people think you know, the same about Mary, you know, she's at in danger. So I could imagine they relocated and, you know, lived out the rest of their years somewhere else in anonymity. Yeah. This is the frustrating part of law, though. You have these situations where the right thing to do doesn't feel like the right thing. 
the not guilty doesn't feel legally it's right, but morally it just feels so wrong. Right. Now, this really underscores, though, and, and we've seen how protections to the defendants have evolved over the years, such as Miranda, because of situations like this, you yeah. know, abuse by authorities. And this is where, in this day and age, law enforcement professionals, whether you're out on patrol or you are in investigations, you have to be so on top of the laws. You have to be on top of the ever-changing case laws in order to protect the integrity of the case mm -hmm. because the actions you are doing, no matter how well-intentioned, I mean, there are people that do bad things in law enforcement, but there are people who step outside of the legalities because they just aren't aware, oh, the case law changed. Hmm. And now they've done something in which... Whatever they were doing on that case gets tossed. And that's the technical aspect of it. It's so, so hard on the law enforcement professionals to stay on top of so much that's constantly changing. Hmm. And oftentimes having to make decisions that are split-second decisions based on these ever-changing laws. That's where you get frustrated where somebody who's well-intentioned, but next thing you know, nope, that law enforcement professional violated the defendant's right because we had a recent case law that came out that now you can't do that. Even though previously you could, now you can't. What I love about this show is that I can bring you a case from 1890, 1891, and you can draw that from your experience works in parallel with the experience of a detective or a prosecutor from the 1890s, because these are all the same. The issues are the same. Sometimes the tactics are the same. We have an improvement, certainly, of technology now, but there are some cases that we talk about that were solved simply because the detectives were good and they cared mm -hmm. and they tried to talk to people. And boy, they just couldn't make it over the goal line on this case. Right. Yeah, and this is an example of the limitations that you can run across in which I think you use the term get over the goal line. Mm -hmm. You know you're on the right path. It's just you don't have enough. And there are many cases. So there are cases in my past, uh, which uh, myself, original investigators, we know who the killer is. We just can't get it to a point to where we can get enough probable cause to effect an arrest and to get a DA to go, yes, I will prosecute. And that is frustrating. And that's when you hope, well, I hope more witnesses come forward or I hope technology improves where we can get that, that final bit that will push the case over the goal line. And, and sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. And that's why I think meaningful input from the public is so important because, you know, maybe they're scared to talk about something or there's a relative that they know did something and they're just hoping mm -hmm. that the police with DNA and all the flashy stuff you see on TV can do it without their involvement. And so many times they can't. The police can't do it without help. And that's that's something where you being in the world of cold cases, that is an advantage that I can take advantage of is the passage of time because you may have witnesses or family members, et cetera, who are scared to talk in part maybe because they have fear for their own safety or their family member's safety because of an existing relationship with the offender. But then time goes on. Maybe the offender gets arrested and he's in prison for the rest of his life. He's no longer a threat. 
And so now they're more willing to come forward with the information. That's something that can be exploited. And even in this case, there may be circumstances that if this was not such an old case, that now people who were afraid to talk because of whatever would be able to come forward with information that could be much more incriminating. Oh, the pharmacist says, yeah, I just sold uh, Mary Sheedy a whole bunch of morphine last week. You know, that's a circumstance that would be taken into consideration. Well, John Sheedy did not get justice ultimately. Doesn't sound like a whole lot of people were sad that he died. But ultimately, it's not the victim and their life. We're having to solve a case, regardless of how we feel about the victim. So next week, we'll have another compelling case. Yeah, no, again, I'll be looking forward to it. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ryo Baum. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That Is Wicked, A Gilded Age Story of Murder and the Race to Decode the Criminal Mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Buried Bones merch.